Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and as always, thank you so much for listening in. In this episode, I'll be exploring healthy eating and sleeping and how that ties into the Waldorf approach. So you know the show notes page for this episode will be waldorfy.com forward slash eating and sleeping to make things simple. Later in this episode, I'm going to be speaking with returning guest, Dr. Adam Blanning, who I've had on the show before as an anthroposophical doctor and has children who attend Waldorf School and also graduated from Waldorf School himself, so I love his perspective. I, of course, have to thank all of the Waldorf Patreon supporters. Before we get started, what's Patreon, you may be wondering? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators you love with a small monthly contribution. The Waldorf podcast has always been a free, accessible resource for all, but free doesn't pay the bills. Believe it or not, the cost of just one nice coffee or latte a month really goes a long way to help me to keep being able to create the show. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash Waldorf and Patreon is P. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I also have to thank our fantastic Waldorfy podcast partner, Sparkle Stories. Sparkle Stories offers over 1,400 original audio stories for children ages three and up. You can find a playlist of audio stories for young children that accompany this week's episode, plus sign up for an extended 30-day free trial by using the coupon code Waldorfy at sparklestories.com forward slash Waldorfy. I just love Sparkle Stories and all they offer. Some of you following on social media may remember last week, uh, both of my kids and myself all got this horrible stomach bug. And I have to say, Sparkle Stories totally got us through because it helped all, really all of us to get a little bit more rest. I just can't speak highly about them enough. You'll get to hear me talk a little bit more about Sparkle Stories later in this episode. Also, I have to mention that this is the last episode of the seventh season, and I'll be speaking a little bit more about what's to come for Waldorfy towards the end of this episode. So now I'll get into my experience with eating and sleeping uh, in relation to Waldorf as a young child. I have to say my relationship to eating healthy and memories of that is all having to do with my experience with Waldorf. At the time when I was growing up, eating whole foods, certainly eating organic, was just not very mainstream in the 90s. It was definitely around. I remember seeing it maybe in the grocery store, but it just wasn't as popular as it is now. And the mindset of healthy eating being so important was definitely not pushed on us for sure, but definitely present uh, within uh, our school's approach. As I'll mention later when I speak to Dr. Blanning, the it's not super common that there's a cafeteria or that food is provided in the Waldorf classroom. I think it's much more common that in Waldorf programs, there's a, a packed lunch brought to school, certainly in independent schools. I'm sure it's obviously much different for a charter, a charter Waldorf school. But it's a little different in the early childhood classroom where the preparation of things like, you know, baking bread, which I've talked about is, of course, very traditional for a Waldorf classroom, or making soup together one day of the week. I know in my son's little Waldorf program, they he says they have taco day on Thursday, which I really think is like a taco bowl or something that they make. Um, and he really looks forward to that. And all of that food is sourced organically whenever possible. I know local whenever possible. Really, we're, We are really fortunate here in Wilton, New Hampshire to live and have our uh, Waldorf school be right next to a biodynamic farm. Biodynamic farming ties into Waldorf and in that it's also rooted in anthroposophy. The study of anthroposophy founded by Rudolf Steiner, who also founded Waldorf Education. I speak more about biodynamic farming in an episode back in season three, uh, which I believe 
there are actually two episodes about that. And I'll link to those on the show notes page for this episode. If you have more interest in biodynamic farming, Uh, the only way that I can describe it briefly is basically even think of organic farming and then beyond that, like even better. Um, And it's really, really incredible and incredibly nutritious. So I definitely think it's worth exploring for those of you that are interested, certainly in Waldorf and healthy eating. So yeah, I just remember the priority on whole foods being really good for us and nourishing for our bodies, uh, being the focus of what healthy eating was. And like I said, it was never pushed on us and it certainly was never taught. Like you have to eat healthy as you know, a child attending a Waldorf school, but whenever like food was, was prepared or served or, you know, parents brought food in, there was definitely always this, um, maybe my mom would even describe it as like pressure to make sure that you are, um, you know, bringing something into the classroom that was nutritious and nourishing. And that um, at the time, and I think is communicated now as well, really uh, primarily being whole foods, being the the main one. And Dr. Blanning speaks about kind of why this is important and why whole foods are nourishing when I speak with him later in this episode. So my mom over time, as I was growing up, I think when we were really little, she made kind of what was simple and her focus on what was um, organic or whole foods really uh, became, her awareness around that became greater over time and uh, our diets all kind of like improved as we got older. I think she also had you know, the younger children were older, so she had more time to obviously prepare, uh, you know, things that would take a little bit longer in the afternoon, which was really lovely uh, and nourishing and delicious for all of us. With sleep, I don't really have any memories of how um, sleep, you know, tied in with the Waldorf approach as a young child attending a Waldorf school, except something that I do speak about again later with Dr. Blanning in this episode, rest time and daytime rest being uh, of high importance uh, for the developing child and how for us all the way, even through the beginning of first grade, a rest time and some kids would even still be napping during that rest time was built into our days all the way up, even through the beginning of first grade and supporting us in that transition from the kindergarten to the first grade. And I do believe it did support us and was really important, especially in that really big transition. Nighttime sleep, I know, definitely looked different for different friends that I had. I had uh, a friend that uh, co-slept with their parents until they were 12, and there was nothing weird about that. That's just how they slept best. And then um, myself, I went to bed, I know, um, pretty early. That was just part of my mom's routine with all of us, that we went to bed around 7.30 and maybe 8 as we got older and in the summertime um, throughout the entire year. So just the effort, I guess, in the early bedtime was just to support uh, making sure that our sleep, our sleep needs were met. And yeah, I don't remember that really ever being like a focus or brought up, but obviously you're not in Waldorf school at night. So it's really only the routines around daytime sleep that I have any, any memory around really. Now I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Adam Blanning, who has really just a wealth of information and knowledge to share on this topic. I want to say briefly before we get started in speaking that especially with healthy eating, um, I do think there's uh, this kind of assumption and, you know, obviously healthy eating is so great. Why does everybody not do it? Well, it's also a little inaccessible for many. The cost of eating whole foods is definitely um, in many areas and in many circumstances quite a bit more um, expensive than eating many processed foods. And I think that that's just something that as a community and Waldorf communities need to be aware of when we're talking about the importance of something like healthy eating, that uh, eating healthy whole foods, especially organic, is just not accessible to many people. And I uh, just wanted to bring that again to the awareness of many of us who are in Waldorf communities listening to this episode right now. Now I'm going to be speaking, as I mentioned, with one of my favorite guests ever, Dr. Adam Blanning. Thank you so much for joining me again on the show, Dr. Blanning. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Ashley. Pleasure to be here. Happy to speak together. So we're speaking about healthy eating and sleeping, particularly for the young child. And I'm wondering if we can start with healthy eating. Um, It's obvious to some and maybe not so obvious to others, but why healthy eating for young children? How does it support their natural development? Sure. That's a great question. Well, I think eating is important, not just 
in terms of calories and different nutritional components. But really, it's a big way that children are taking in the world and learning to transform it. So we want to be giving children food that they can really transform. And that's easier if children are eating good foods, whole foods, things that don't have a lot of preservatives or added components that are going to make it more difficult for them to break it down and really digest it. And then healthy eating, I think, is also about helping children find good rhythms for eating because there's a whole aspect of being ready to eat, knowing that your body is going to be able to work with something and anticipate that and be able to participate in it. So I think healthy eating is, is about the content of the food. Uh, it's also about how the food is prepared. And then there's an aspect of rhythm that's really important too. Just as a quick example, I know if, if I'm making food at home and there's the thought about what's going to be made and preparing it and having it be at a certain time and there are smells from the kitchen and all of those kinds of things, I know that I eat differently and my family eats and digests differently than if that food was suddenly just placed in front of us magically because then we've We've gotten ready for the eating and we're able to take it in and transform it in a different way. It's interesting. I've observed my, uh, my older son is almost four now and we have a couple of meals that we make together and that's when he eats the most at dinner and he eats uh, the widest variety of things when he's, help when he's actually helped in the preparation process. Um, mm-hmm. And it feels good to both of us. And yeah, I somehow just have this feeling that it somehow contributes to Uh, our nourishment that we put in this kind of nurturing love to the food that we are going to be eating together. So I'm wondering now if you could speak to what's Waldorf about eating healthy. And I say that because any parent or carer who has their child in a Waldorf school is beginning to explore the Waldorf approach and seeing blogs and things on social media, they're going to see, especially in a Waldorf early childhood classroom, that the foods that are being prepared and served to the young children are really, really healthy. So is there a connection there? Sure. Well, I think it, it's a funny balance between trying to recognize, well, what are healthy things for my family and for my child, and not get stuck in feeling like, oh my goodness, to be part of this activity, I need to really take on a whole new way of being. I, I think it's more about perspective and insight than it is about a specific thing that you have to be doing. That said, I, I think the kind of foods that you see in Waldorf classrooms and Waldorf settings is generally going to be whole foods uh, whenever possible, a consciousness about less sugar, organic when possible. And of course, these are not things that are specific to Waldorf. These are things that are true for all kinds of different perspectives about healthy eating. And then I guess I would say sometimes you will see a variety of foods that's maybe different than what we get in our average American Western diet. Um, Different kinds of grains, uh, root vegetables, uh, different fruits. And I guess I would say those things come really from recognizing that having a breadth of food that we're taking in is also very helpful, both nutritionally and for the development of healthy digestion. That being exposed to different things is part of our development. Um, in many ways, it's, it's kind of like Waldorf education is working with ways of learning that are quite diverse, where you might not just read something and then memorize it and say it back, but rather you are taking it in and maybe you're learning the information through story uh, or through an activity or through a practical task or doing artistic expression, or acting it out. Those are all different ways to be working with content and understanding. And I guess I would say, in terms of food, a similar kind of thing is trying to happen in Waldorf settings, where you might see different grains being given, um, 
and a, a kind of rhythm of how children are are eating things. Yes, it's it's quite different uh, than what you might imagine as a traditional school lunch. Yes, and not every school serves lunch, of course. In the early childhood classrooms, it's common that the children will participate in making a snack or lunch to eat together or baking bread once a week. My husband and I still, you're a Waldorf alum too, Adam, so maybe you can Mm -hmm. remember just that smell of bread on Friday for us. Um, Even now when we bake with my son, we always joke, it's like we're right back at the kindergarten again. Um, So there definitely is a, a rhythm to it. And it really helps support the children outside of even just eating. It's interesting when you were mentioning learning through all these different experiences, what popped into my head was in a way it's kind of like head, hearts, hands and mouths and bellies a little bit, isn't it? Um, And that it's just exploring the natural world as part of uh, different textures and colors and um, all of the things that are at our fingertips, you know, in our world, especially um, I think, Waldorf schools that are preparing uh, food or snacks for children in the classroom um, are very often sourcing local things that grow locally too, um, from what I have observed. And I'm, I'm sure uh-huh. you can probably agree. So I'm wondering within the Waldorf classroom setting, even if snacks or meals are not being prepared, some schools, um, I have been to schools that have cafeterias that where food is being prepared. Our school did not have that. So we always brought a packed lunch um, after the, uh, you know, kindergarten years. And I think a lot of families wonder, you know, how does the school, how will the school be supportive of um, our family and our family's dietary needs? So whether that's gluten-free or vegan, in your experience as an anthroposophical doctor and, you know, working with uh, Waldorf schools and advising Waldorf schools and whatnot, um, do you see schools being supportive of the dietary needs of different families and, and children? I, I would say generally, yes. I, th- I think there's a lot of flexibility and recognition that families have, well, families and children specifically have different kinds of dietary needs. There's, there's nothing in Waldorf that says that you need to be eating a specific diet. I think there is the, the wish and the observation and the intention that children are getting a balanced diet. And so trying to make sure, I would say particularly that there are some good fats that are in somebody's diet, that can be helpful. Um, And probably again, trying to lean more towards whole foods as opposed to a lot of processed or prepackaged foods. Those are always helpful things. Um, I would say the reality is that there are so many different dietary needs and preferences right now that I think the world has really changed in the last couple of decades. And that whether somebody is eating a vegan diet or a gluten-free diet or a dairy-free diet or all of those things together, um, that Waldorf education is open to meeting and working with those things. I will say sometimes I've seen situations where a family might be asked if things are very complicated to help provide some supplement to the snacks or the things that are provided in the classroom uh, if the dietary needs are very specific for a child. But I think that usually works quite harmoniously and really there's not a specific Waldorf diet that everybody needs to be adhering to. Yes, I feel like we keep rediscovering this concept as I've continued to do episodes for this show, which is there's really almost nothing that's like, if you're going to follow the Waldorf approach, you need to do this or you have to do this. Um, It's really just working out of these indications, right? That what Rudolf Steiner um, gave initially. And one of those indications is, you know, to support the child's development is partly to not just educate them, but also their physical well-being you know, impacts, like how they develop physically impacts their later ability to grow and continue to learn throughout life. And healthy eating, I have to imagine, just kind of goes along and supporting that, right? It does. And I I think as, as a Waldorf graduate and a Waldorf parent and working with Waldorf schools, there's always this funny balance of there are some things that you can encounter, which can feel like, where did that come from? That, that feels very different from my experience or the habits that I have. And sometimes it can feel a little fixed. And I, 
I think ideally Waldorf education does not have those places, though there are some aspects that have been carefully thought through. I'll just jump for a quick second to, to reading in early childhood, <laughs> because I do think it actually relates to nutrition in some ways, which is just recognizing that in preschool and kindergarten, the focus really is around growing healthy bodies. And that if, if you find activities where a child can just become capable and feeling safe and confident in their environment and their own capacities and really interested in the world, that that's a kind of primary activity is, is you want to feel good in yourself and you want to be able to take in impressions deeply and work with them and not be overwhelmed by them. And I would say that leads to a kind of ripeness. That's a funny word to use developmentally, but I think it's true that you're really laying, laying a foundation for being curious and interested and active, engaged in the rest of life. And you can have intellectual adult concepts brought into early life, but in some ways that distracts from this process of really growing healthy bodies, um, healthy metabolism, healthy digestion, healthy sleep. And so it can sound like, well, why in the world is the education presented in that particular way? Why, why isn't there reading at an earlier age? And it really comes from now a century of observation and really validation of how important this foundation is. So I think sometimes when you're encountering Waldorf, you can find things that feel very different. And I hope that there are opportunities where that can be explored and really communicated together to say, this is not being done out of a fixity, but this is really being done out of a, a kind of nurturing and a protection of recognizing that there are these rhythms of child development. And we really want to grow whole people over time, not just specific pieces of information. So that, that's a little diversion, but I, I think education is really a nutritional process also on a lot of levels when, when we start looking at it over the whole of childhood. Totally. And I'm wondering even the word ripeness. I love that, by the way. I feel like I've tried to describe that actually in this approach to when traditional instruction surrounding academics is introduced uh, really after uh, age seven in that first in the first grade year to you, the children become excited to learn at that point. Mm -hmm. They are, like you said, ripe. And that's just such a good word. I'm glad that you brought that up. I also was thinking maybe that translates a little bit to self-confidence in oneself to like a groundedness that then allows the young child to be really receptive and open to this new information and taking it in and digesting it, maybe not in their bellies, you know, but their brains. Um, and I see just from experiencing it myself, that definitely, I think, rung true for me, I guess. Yeah, and I, I do think that there's, there's really a parallel between being able to take in food and break it down and figure out what are the pieces that you need to get rid of that you don't need and what are the parts that you can really take up and incorporate into your own body, into your own activity. That parallels a lot the learning process. And so these foundational activities of we're going to make food together. Uh, we're going to prepare it. We're going to bake the bread, and then we're going to eat it together. And we're going to do that with rhythm. We're going to look at the seasons of the year. Uh, we're going to play together. We're going to walk together. It sounds funny because I think we're very used to separating out intellectual activities from physiologic things like digestion. But really, the process that we go through is so much the same. In fact, besides ripeness, I find it helpful to speak about sensory diet for children and to say, when we take in impressions, how many impressions are we taking in? Do we have time to work through them? And do we have different ways to process them? 
and make them our own. Just very briefly, if, if you take a small child to a very busy restaurant or a big social gathering and ask them to eat a food when there's all kinds of noise and commotion and activity around them, it's pretty hard for a small child to eat because they are taking in so much sensory diet at the same time that I think they just instinctively know they can't really be eating food or digesting food at that same moment. Um, where I can say, if that passes, or if you're able to go to a quieter corner and sit down with the child, you can eat the same food that they really weren't able to take in 10 or 15 minutes ago, and now suddenly they're incredibly hungry. It was just that they were in a space where they weren't really able to take it in and work with it. So sensory nutrition is also a big part of the life of a young child. And coming back to rhythm, uh, some parents and carers may be wondering, there is this, there are different grains uh, that you may find if your child is attending a Waldorf uh, school or, or is in the Waldorf setting uh, that are used on different days. Um, and do you know, what's, what's the story with that? I know I never knew really anything about millet until I was, uh -huh. um, you know, attending a Waldorf school and my in-laws yeah, you know, cook and eat millet. And um, I'd never, never been introduced to that grain anywhere else. So what's the story with different grains on different days of the week? Right. I, I think millet is often the one that's a surprise because I, I don't think it's part of most people's usual diet. But if we look at different grains, rice, oats, millet, um, I'm probably going to start repeating them because I don't know them all offhand. <laughs> But there are different qualities about them. There are different qualities about how the plant grows. Um, there are different qualities about how the plant tastes, the grain tastes. And I really think that this is about trying to build a kind of repertoire of digestion, of being able to take in things that have a different quality and doing that in a rhythmic way. In some ways, it's, it's very interesting. There are different dietary suggestions for people who have food allergies, where if you are sensitive to a food, it is good to not be eating it every single day, but that you can eat things in rotation and your body becomes able to process it in a different way. It's kind of like it's exposed to it and it works with it and then it has some time to rest. And then you're working with a different type of food or a different food group. Now, I don't think those kinds of food rotation plans were uh, prevalent at the founding of the Waldorf School. But it's the same idea, not so much of avoiding things that are bad or challenging for you, as much as rhythmic exposure and variation between different types of food. So much like there are different colors that children will paint with, um, which have different moods and different qualities. I think we could say that the grains in early childhood Waldorf education are a kind of engagement and experiment with these different activities, but from a nutrition standpoint. So now I'm wondering about sleep. Let's talk about healthy sleep habits. So why are why is healthy sleep important for the development of a young child? Well, let's use an example of food, and then we'll jump to sleep. If you were offered a really rich meal, maybe it's your birthday and you get to choose what is your favorite thing that you want to eat, that would be really wonderful and a special treat. And so you get to engage in that meal and maybe you eat a little bit more than you usually would because it tastes so good. And that would be wonderful. Now, if two hours later I came and said, oh, that meal was so good, here, let's eat it again. Maybe if you still have some room, you would enjoy, you know, kind of like swinging back through the kitchen later on to get some of the leftovers that would still be good. But if we continued that pattern where you're offered this delicious meal over and over again every two hours, 
at a certain point, you would just naturally say, you know what, thank you so much. This is very generous, but I can't eat anymore. I, I just need to digest for a while. And this is going to be true no matter how good or nutritious or delicious the food is that you're being offered. There's a certain point where you just say, I don't want any more. We could alternatively say, here's a little piece of chocolate, and then I'm going to give you a piece of chocolate 15 minutes later, and then another 15 minutes later. And after several hours, or especially after a few days, you wouldn't feel so good with a little piece of chocolate every 15 minutes. Our healthy physiology is based on rhythm. And so I think the sleep life of small children is so vital because we live in a world which is incredibly full of sense impressions all the time. Uh, we live very often in places where there's a lot going on. We live in a world where information is shared very quickly and shared all the time that in a way you have to be conscious about how you're taking in impressions and information. And so that washes over into the life of children that it's just very easy for them to be stimulated nearly all of the time. And if we look at things that are offered to children, especially in terms of media or screens, that's just a huge diet. That's uh, a smorgasbord. <laughs> or um, those are experiences where a lot of sensory information is intentionally packaged in a very concentrated form. And children's nervous systems are not in a place where they are able to regulate that information. It's very hard for them to say, no, thank you, I've had enough, because their sensory system is really wide open. And in a lot of ways, a young child is like a sensing organ all the time. They're just so open to what's happening around them. And so in order for them to be really feeling grounded, being able to return to their own sense of quiet, their own sense of wellness, rhythmic sleep is an essential part of their life. And just like if somebody gets used to eating lunch at a particular time, if you have a four or five-year-old and they eat snack or lunch at a particular time every day, then you know on the weekend they're going to want to eat at about that same time. I think rhythmic sleep is the same, that we need those opportunities. We enter into them better when we know that they're coming in a predictable way. And this is a special area of observation and research for me, is that I think the process of calming and quieting is actually an essential way that we come to a capacity for prioritizing our impressions, that we let go of things from the day, and that we really come into a restful connection within ourselves, which, which is really an important anchor for resilience. So rhythmic sleep, enough sleep is hugely important and um, in Waldorf situations, Waldorf settings, I also think sleep is spoken a lot about, mostly because most people don't recognize that children need a lot more sleep than adults do. And if we're basing children's sleep rhythms on our own needs or schedules, then children are going to be chronically sleep deprived. It's, it's actually surprising how much sleep somebody needs when they're small. You know, uh, a 12-hour night plus one or two hours of nap serves many children very well, I would say, through age five or six. So I think that's why you hear a lot of emphasis about sleep and sleep rhythms. Yes, and also it's not uncommon. In fact, it's more commonplace. I mean, you 
know better than myself. I could just speak to my own experience that if a child attending a usually a Waldorf program, there is rest time built into the day, especially for the younger ch- child who's within that program for the full day till you know two fifteen or two thirty or three. The afternoon always would include a, a nap or rest time. And my even up to my grade school experience, when I first started first grade, there was, we got all of our little mats out and, and we had a big huge circle on the ground and we would have a rest time uh, where a book was read to us or a story or something like that. And I think some children, I was like bouncing off the walls a little bit still, but it was a really nice just to have the period of the day, especially adjusting to that longer day coming from kindergarten. Um, and we didn't do that, I think, the full of first grade, but just to kind of adapt to that pace of the day being longer. Um, we had rest time still built into the day all the way up into the beginning of first grade. I'm not sure if every school does that, but I'm sure you can speak to how daily daytime rest time is is built into the day within most Waldorf programs. Yeah, it it is. And for some children, the goal is going to be that they are able to sleep if they're tired. And for other children, I think it's really about the experience of rest. Because gosh, how how many times are we really allowed the opportunity to just totally quiet? And then if we're tired, we go to sleep. it's kind of a, it's a very countercultural <laughs> activity right now to be practicing calming and quieting enough that if you are tired, you can really rest and sleep. So I, I agree in, in Waldorf early childhood situations, you see that there is a rest time, certainly through kindergarten. I do think there are some programs where you will see that there is more open space or rest time in the beginning of first grade. I I know many children going from kindergarten to first grade get incredibly tired the first half of the year. That going to a full day of activity is just a a big step up. It's it's a whole new diet, if you will, of activities and impressions. And it takes some time for them to make that adjustment. I recently was giving a talk to a group of medical students And we spoke about the idea of while you're studying, at certain points, laying down on the floor for two minutes and just breathing a little bit and resting. And that there's actually different research studies showing that if you're doing a dedicated activity, when you go longer than about 25 minutes, some of your effectiveness, your efficiency goes down. That that we work better with these shorter rhythms. So I was suggesting to the medical students that if they're doing a long study session, it's not a bad thing to periodically lay down for two minutes and just breathe and rest and relax all your muscles and close your eyes. And it was so funny because there's a culture of learning and work where some of the students just expressed guilt at the idea of taking two minutes out to lay down and do that. And I think that speaks actually to how important it is that we have some of this experience of saying, it's okay, I've eaten enough, or I've watched, I've read, I've looked, I've listened enough, and I can just pause a little bit and take it in and work with it. So maybe there's some aspect of Waldorf nap time which is actually trying to build a life skill of being able to check in and see when do I need to slow down and let go even just for a few minutes. Totally. And I'm wondering in your experience working with families and families with young children, how do you see, there is not what I've kind of come to understand is there isn't a Waldorf approach to sleep. And I feel like what's so interesting, um, when I first went to a parent and child class with my little son, um, the parents in that class approached sleep quite differently. Some people were like hard sleep training people. They were like, my baby needed to sleep. This is what I have to do. And other families um, co-slept and had just a completely different approach to sleep. So um, I find it interesting that 
parents and families and carers that are attracted to the Waldorf approach really have such different approaches. And do you want to speak to to that, how there's just not one approach for that's Waldorf to sleep? Right. Well, I, I think the answer to that is that there are just so many different types of children. And I feel like, yes, different families have different approaches that feel natural, which can be based on people's own experiences. I, I do feel if you have a family with multiple children, it's likely that you're going to have to approach sleep from different ways, just based on the different children within your own family. Um, there are some children where this process of Letting go is so easy, and they never have a problem sleeping, and they sleep through the whole night from six weeks of age. I do know children like that. And there are others who, if they could, um, they would have somebody lay next to them in a bed until they go to sleep until they're 12. And I actually know children who have done that, who, who were not able to fall asleep independently until they were entering adolescence. So there's just a huge breadth of needs. And I don't think that there's a specific approach that Waldorf is mandating. Um, I do think there are commonalities in terms of trying to build some consistent progression. We could call it a sleep ritual of saying, first we do this activity, and then we get ready in this way. And a lot of times there's a recommendation of having a verse or a song or something to, to mark the end of the evening. And I think there's wisdom in that progression. And some children don't need that rhythm at all. They, they just naturally can do it. And there are other children who really, really benefit from that predictable um, transition time and sort of having signposts of this is where it's time to be awake and this is where it's time to be asleep. So I think we just have to be flexible and really look at the needs of each family and then specifically at the needs of each child. Yes, well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise always with me, Dr. Blanning. Oh, it's a joy. You know, um, I really think it is, it's great fun to try to think about these things in flexible ways. And I have the suspicion that Waldorf education is about learning insights that people have developed, but then needing to renew them and rediscover them and see how they fit to our current situation over and over again. I, I don't know how many times people have needed to do that over the last century plus, but I think it's an ongoing task and really a great gift in the world if, if we can approach these things and look at them creatively so that we can help our children. Have you been looking for something specially crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind? Wouldn't it be amazing if this content promoted values like kindness, empathy, and respect to help build a gentler world? Would you love a break but feel a little guilty about turning the TV on? Then you're going to be pretty excited to learn about Sparkle Stories. With Sparkle Stories, your family can enjoy a world of 1,400 plus original audio stories for ages three and up. Sparkle Stories is dedicated to helping the world go a little slower and be a little kinder. Their audio-only approach invites children to adventure, wonder, and dream in a safe and secure way. Audio stories are a low-pressure way to make even the shyest of readers hungry for more adventure and learning. My older son is three and a half, and I love that I can search for stories based on his age or story topic. For him, I love that stories are recorded slowly for young ears, ensuring maximum comprehension and enjoyment. It's been such a nice way to build a quiet rest time into our active days. I've also gifted Sparkle Stories to my six-year-old niece twice now, and I know she enjoys the longer tales and ongoing series. My favorite thing about Sparkle Stories? It is such a great alternative to the TV. Their audio-only stories spur children to use their imaginations and grow their curiosity compared to image-based entertainment like TV. Especially having our new little one in the house, I love using Sparkle Stories to keep my three-year-old's mind engaged and having fun while I get things done. 
I've teamed up with Sparkle Stories to offer an extended 30-day free trial so you can enjoy the entire library of Sparkle Stories, over 1,400 original audio stories for ages three and up, and you can trust me, you will enjoy. To check out a list of the Sparkle Stories our family enjoys most and additional playlists of stories to accompany each episode throughout the seventh season, I know, so cool, you can check out sparklestories.com forward slash Waldorfy. To get access to your 30-day free trial of Sparkle Stories just for Waldorfy listeners, just visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up and use code Waldorfy at checkout. And that code is good through the end of 2022. I just love Sparkle Story selection of gentle stories for growing minds. A huge thanks again to Dr. Adam Planning for speaking with me in this episode about healthy eating and sleeping and healthy eating and sleeping habits. Again, the show notes page for this episode is going to be waldorfie.com forward slash eating and sleeping to keep things simple. Now, how do I approach these topics in my home with my young children? It's interesting. This episode is the last episode, as I mentioned, of the seventh season, but I've been thinking about this topic since the season started because to me, it ties in so closely with the Waldorf approach, even though it seems like something everybody eats and everybody sleeps, but healthy eating and sleeping supports the Waldorf approach in a way uh, that's so integral. And I think that really wasn't mentioned just now when I spoke with Dr. Blanning, and that is, uh, or maybe we touched on it a bit, that there's this huge focus on the healthy developing young child and what supports that better than healthy eating and sleeping. And I think it's really kind of after those, you know, very basic needs are met that we can have a conversation about an educational approach. So especially when we look at Waldorf, as many people will call it a holistic approach to education, well, you know, the basis of a holistic approach to well-being and caring for ourselves and our young children or kind of anything is the basic needs. And to me, eating and sleeping, I mean, those are like our most basic needs and can be approached in such a holistic way. So I, it's interesting, as I mentioned, when I was a young child growing up and my mom was just discovering Waldorf, organic was not as widely accessible and certainly was expensive. Um, my mom also, when we were really little, didn't serve us like a huge variety of foods, which is definitely something that uh, I try to do somewhat with my two young children who are now one and just turned four. So for eating in our household, there's really like nothing else that we prioritize more than I feel like healthy eating. We are members at our local biodynamic farm, the Temple Wilton Community Farm, which is, in my opinion, <laughs> the like most wonderful, amazing biodynamic farm in the whole world. I mean, it's like, it's amazing being there and the way the cows are cared for and loved by all of us and getting the raw milk and the cheese and all the vegetables and processing the vegetables together in a way that we get to, you know, savor the vegetables, fruits, you know, the whole year is a family process. My young four-year-old is just starting to get to experience that. Some of his favorite things are just now it's springtime, making the rhubarb into rhubarb compote, which we can freeze and put in oatmeal and things throughout the entire year. Um, and yeah, just the variety of nourishing foods that can grow um, in most areas. It's it's incredible. And uh, it's amazing the variety of vegetables and foods that we get here on this very rocky hillside in New Hampshire, but we do have incredible farmers here. So yeah, we have a, a big focus on trying to serve, you know, the children, but also ourselves in our home, a variety of healthy foods. So uh, they may not like, you know, something we serve them right away, but we really make an effort to keep kind of bringing it to the table. I will say that our approach to eating was baby uh, led weaning. I read a book about baby led weaning. My husband led, read it as well, and that uh, resonated with us a lot. And yeah, that was our approach. So we just started basically giving foods that uh, we'd prepare for us to um, our young children. It was very messy. I think my mother-in-law <laughs> might have been like cringing as food would get often thrown on her floor and carpet, um, you know, as my little ones are learning how to eat. But um, I do think that my now four-year-old 
appreciates a pretty wide variety of foods. He still struggles with, he doesn't love chewing leafy greens. He doesn't have a lot of, he's a very quick eater and he doesn't have a lot of patience for sitting and eating leafy greens. Uh, although we do juice leafy greens for him and then he'll eat them, you know, juiced with an apple and stuff. Um, and then my one-year-old is It'll be interesting to see a little bit more, has more preferences already, it seems, you know, with different spices. But yeah, our our main approach is just making sure that we're trying to provide whole foods whenever possible, trying to provide organic. I would say we we pretty much eat like 90%, um, you know, organic foods. And I I hope that this, um, you know, in me just articulating what we're doing isn't coming off as a, you should be doing this. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, we're very privileged in being in a position where we can prioritize food in the way that we do and afford the food that we um, are able to provide our family with. I know that not all um, are going to be able to do that. And I recognize that there's, you know, a big barrier there. Even when organic is not possible, we uh, try to just provide whole foods when we can. Now I say all of this, um, and then there are two two additional things that I wanted to add. One is that I think, in my approach to you know healthy eating with our young children is, and we've come to this so many times in speaking about young children, is that modeling uh, what we eat for young children is one of the most important factors, I think, in um, our approach to healthy eating. So we sit down, we try to sit down at every meal, the three, uh, four of us together when we can. Um, and certainly always dinner time, we sit down and eat together. And dinner is often when we have the variety of vegetables, the variety of foods and spices and flavors um, that are most diverse in within one meal. So we eat this meal together. We eat this variety of food together. And we have have different preferences. I mean, my husband and I both basically eat everything. I don't love olives. He doesn't like cilantro. And those are things that do come up at the table with uh, our, our now four-year-old. And when we talk about, you know, sometimes he'll say he doesn't like something and we say, that's okay. You know, you don't have to eat that thing, um, but we will keep serving it because that's what we're eating today. Um, and this is the dinner that's here. We definitely don't go and like get something else for him and we don't do that for us. Um, so when we make a meal for each other, for the family, uh, you know, that is what we're eating. And I really feel that modeling eating a variety of foods and vegetables throughout the day um, is one of the most positive impacts that we can have for our young children um, in terms of how to eat healthily. And that also means different things for different families and different cultures too. One of the, and so I say all of this, um, and eating healthy is a huge priority and, you know, we get organic food and biodynamic, you know, food at the farm whenever we can, but um, and this is the part that I've been kind of thinking about all season and talking about in this episode, you know, we don't eat perfectly healthy all the time. We definitely basically never, we never eat something like fast food. Um, when we fly, I actually spend like an entire day prepping food for us because airport food is like my least favorite thing in the world. And it's like, it's 2022. Seriously, are there still no healthy like airport food options? It drives me insane. And trucking all the food around for all of us throughout a travel day drives me nuts. But so we don't really eat fast food, but I will say we do a lot of baking um, and we eat sugar. We eat processed sugar. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because I, like I said, have this focus and eating healthy is like one of the biggest focuses uh, in our home life. And we put a lot of our resources into providing that food for our family. It's a huge priority. But I love baking and I love baking with my four-year-old and we really have this little ritual around um, our tea time in the afternoon, sometimes reading poetry or talking about things that are happening in the day or making the plan for what's happening, you know, the next day, especially if it's a big day, a travel day, or there's an event or something different that's going on. I used to do a lot of that in our bedtime story, but it always felt rushed and kind of crammed and the afternoon tea time, you know, there's a little more, um, you know, there's expanse for really getting into something if we need to talk about something in a way that's like digesting information or something that's happening. Now what's happening that my son, uh, you know, my son is four and we're loving baking together um, and I'm loving exploring baking. I love Scandinavian, Danish, uh, and Swedish baking traditions. I'm right now really trying my mom as well at the same time to get a rye starter going for rye bread. Has We've been failing miserably. It's molding every time. Um, and anybody out there listening to this who's also interested in Danish or Scandinavian Swedish baking, Nordic baking, uh, you know, 
maybe you can reach out to me. We need help. Uh, but because we're getting more interested in this and uh, we have been making more breads, more, we'll make a little tea cake. This week we made a chamomile tea cake with a little strawberry icing. And it was amazing. And I have to say, we actually had our fika, we had our little tea time. We did a huge hike and we had it at the top of the mountain the first day and kind of leftovers the following day. Uh, and so, yeah, we have processed sugar. I do try to, when we're doing these, you know, breads with processed sugar, um, I make pula often. We love pula in this house. Like we just go through it like constantly toast. We make French toast out of it in the morning. Um, we do eat these things either at breakfast time, like a little tea cake or um, breakfast cake or something, apple cake, um, or uh, at this afternoon snack time. It's not always a cake. It's not always a bread. But when it is, that's when it's eaten. Uh, we try not to eat these things after our bedtime. I actually, I was following a social media story of one of my favorite guests, Megan Rose Wilson, who I have spoken with before on the show. And she was mentioning like one of the most healthy differences um, or changes that's happened in her life is not eating after she's like fed her own kids and they've gone to bed. And I have to say, I also started doing that in the last like year and I feel so good. I feel like I go to sleep better. Um, you know, I wouldn't, cause I don't give my kids desserts. I just, like I said, we have these afternoon snacks and moments together, um, with these things that we make that do have the sugar or the less healthy stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it just going to bed after having a healthy meal feels so much better than reaching for a dessert or chocolate or whatever. So for myself, you know, this is really this way that we're eating and the way we're approaching the treats kind of too, um, also makes me feel good. Uh, we just, in the past, like couple months, uh, we gave my four-year-old ice cream for the first time. Um, and that's something we also, when we've had, it's like a super hot day in, in the middle of the afternoon. Um, if we have a birthday party, we do like the cake, the birthday cake, um, at like one, two or three. And yeah, that's what has, has been working for us and feeling good. And yeah, it's really something that I think comes for a lot of people, family, uh, parents, and carers over time, how healthy eating evolves. We all love our children, um, but it really takes um, resources, financial, and time to be uh, making whole foods and purchasing whole foods or organic foods. Not everybody has access to that, as I mentioned, um, but I think that it's still possible to, you know, make a priority um, for those things when it when it is. Um, and I know for myself, it's it's really helped me to enjoy cooking more when we do have the less healthy stuff, like the processed sugar um, that we often make when we are baking. You know, all the floury stuff um, that we always we really always make that. Um, ourselves at home. We do uh, are very fortunate to have an organic bakery close to, so we sometimes will get a treat there. But yeah, making things in the home, I think, is how um, we're also approaching these delectable, lovely, sweet treats. And I think it's also important, again, coming back to the modeling aspect, to in a way model for children that, you know, we don't have to fear like the unhealthy stuff or um, the stuff that may, I always like speaking about it in a way, make our bodies, you know, what, how does our body feel and how does our, what does our body do with these different foods? You know, cause of course my son will have a scoop of ice cream, but then he wants like more and more and more um, and talking about how, um, how, what the different foods are doing for our bodies in different ways. And modeling, I think that eating these things, yeah, it's okay. We can have ice cream. Um, and I spoke about this in the episode about screens and screen time and digital media with Eloise Merkman that, you know, it's okay. And honestly, I find like respectful for young children to have these things in their sphere and in their life um, and helping to guide them through modeling and through discussion that there is a way to introduce these things and there is a way to have these things around. I um, mean, we don't need to be fearful of them, but let's bring consciousness to it and, and learning too around, um, you know, what makes us feel good and, you know, what, what helps us to be really nourished and where that, um, you know, importance and focus should be. So speaking about uh, sleep, this is a really interesting one. I have a one-year-old and anybody listening who has uh, a child who's really three and under, oh gosh, probably even older, but certainly three and under and one and under sleep is hard for most of us. 
And I know what it feels like to be that parent or care who's listening to the other parent or care whose baby sleeps 13 hours a night. That was not me. But I do really believe, and I read before I, partly before I had my first uh, little one and even after, I read like nine or 10 books about sleep all different sleep approaches. And uh, right from the get-go, it really didn't resonate with me and didn't feel good in my gut, like any kind of like crying it out um, method. Um, And I was like, that was horrifying even to me when my first was like one month, two months, I would, people would be like, oh, just put him in his bed and let him cry. I was like, are you insane? That like makes me want to throw up. It was horrible um, to even like think about that. And, but I'd read all the books and I'd read all the approaches and I really just knew in my gut two things. I it didn't that obviously that approach didn't feel good, but at the same time, healthy sleep and healthy sleep habits really felt important to me. And I knew that that was going to help to support all of us in our well being. So my husband had really talked me into doing like an approach where I just wasn't going in and nursing my uh, first. Like we get to the point, I think sometime at between four and six months where I was like going in with him like every hour. Um, I was never getting more than 40 minutes to 60 minutes of sleep at a time. And I was really struggling. Um, and he was also really struggling during the day. Um, there was just nothing left in the tank, I feel like for either of us, which was really sad. And I think my husband was also struggling and how he could be supportive. So um, we just kind of made a plan with him that my husband was going to go and offer him a bottle and like just let him essentially, I will use the word self-soothe, which did involve some crying. But with him, it was very, I mean, like at that point, you know, as a mother, I also knew when he was crying, what it was about and what was going on. And there was never this like fear or rage or pain. It was like, oh, it's uncomfortable falling asleep kind of whining. And then he just went to sleep and it was not that hard and very brief. And he very quickly after that, just started getting up once a night to nurse, going back to sleep. And that was it until he was about 18 months old. And then he stopped nursing um, in the middle of the night. And that worked for us. And then I had my second. And as so many listeners will know and understand, it's so different having two children. They can be completely different. Um, And my now one-year-old never got to the point where I could, like my husband could go in um, and he like there's never a point where we could have just like let him like self-soothe, I feel like. And that is because his little nighttime cry was like a full rage. Um, to And there was just like no, there was no, um, there was really nothing that didn't make it be that. Um, and we did work with like a sleep consultant, which sounds like super, um, I hate this word, like bougie, you know, um, but we were really struggling with him. Like I was just in like panic when he would have these like raging crying moments, but at the same time, like I just could not um, be like up with him, holding or nursing him like all hours of the night. Um, and I will say, I actually did try to co-sleep with both my kids. That was like my first um my first approach, but my, I could not a sleep and be my neck, no matter what I would do would get so jacked up that I could hardly like move or lift them during the day. This happened at the start, um, when both of them were born that I just could not manage. So then I started, um, I just have them next to me in a little best net for a long time. And then they, um, eventually did kind of move out of our room, but, Yeah. So with my second, we did work with a sleep consultant. I highly recommend that to people because I think if you can access that, it can be very helpful, especially if you've got um, a lot of struggles. It certainly helped us a lot with the daytime sleep. Now my little one-year-old takes two long naps. It's great. He gets, I think, all the sleep he needs, but I'm still going in sometimes multiple times a night um, at night. And I know that will change. And, you know, I know there are people that would say like, uh, get those habits in or whatever. But I think that every family is different. Every child is different. Sleep develops different for different children. And unlike when I started with my first, um, my, my, uh, sight into this, even after reading all those sleep books was like, oh my gosh, there's only one way. And that's like horrifying. And how could you do that? Now I'm like, you know what? We're all different. We all have different children. And I think as a parent or carer, your gut is going to just guide you so much and what's going to help to support 
healthy sleep. And I think healthy sleep and uh, really looks how that develops really will look different for different families. And I think that, um, as I mentioned, you know, working with a sleep consultant can be helpful if it's accessible, but there's also different sleep consultants and different people say different things. So find those people that make you feel good. You know, you first talk to them or you follow them on social media and they make you feel good when you see them and, and speak with them. So healthy sleep is important. I know it. I feel it in my gut. My littler one, it's tough, but we will get there because it's important to me and I prioritize it. Uh, and I know it will take time, but we will get there and it's okay. I have to say that this seventh season has been really difficult with him just not really getting to a point where he's ever slept consistently well at night. Um, and yeah, that's, <laughs> it's been really tough. I feel like even though I've loved this season, had so much fun creating it has definitely been season four was by far and above the most difficult season, but this season's been, been really hard. And so now I think I have to speak a little bit about the ending of the seventh season. Again, super thanks to Dr. Adam Blanning, who spoke with me earlier in this episode. Again, a huge thanks to our generous Patreon supporters. Learn more and sign up to become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Waldorfy. A huge, huge thanks to Sparkle Stories, our Waldorfy Season 7 podcast partner. To get access to the extended 30-day free trial of Sparkle Stories, just use the coupon code Waldorfy at checkout and you can get through to that at sparklestories.com forward slash Waldorfy, where you'll also be able to find the playlist of audio stories for young children that accompany each episode in this seventh season. So the end of the seventh season, here we are. Like I said, it's been a little tough. Uh, you know, my one-year-old has never really slept very well, which, you know, made it challenging, but we also got, uh, my whole family got kind of sick, like toy had like a little stomach bug. And then we had a really horrible long cold or something when we were in Florida towards the beginning of the season. Um, and I was able to really make and create a lot of these episodes for the season. Like early on, I've been the most prepared for this season, like the most ahead, which felt really good. Um, but also still just really drained. Um, and that's why now I'm going to be taking a little break from the show. Um, I did take a little break between season six and season seven, which helped me to get ahead, which felt so good. Um, but I never actually took a break from working. I actually haven't taken a break from the show since I started in June of 2019. Well, that was actually the, when the first episode came out, but I started working on the show, um, in February actually of 2019. And it's just kind of been like full on since then. Uh, and at times been really intense. I don't have any childcare. Initially, my goal was kind of to create a space where I could work a whole bunch of hours and pay for childcare. Um, but as I've had my second and really just love being um, a stay-at-home carer with them, um, that is my priority always. And I think in taking a little break, I can find a little balance and inspiration in that role before you know coming back um, and focusing on the show more. So definitely, I think for this summer, um, I'm going to be taking a step back, maybe uh, returning with episodes towards the end of August or September. I am, as always, wanting to hear what you want to hear about in the next season and in upcoming episodes. Um, yeah, I think there's so much for the future of the show. I've had an amazing experience um, with being able to partner with different brands that I think you may like. All of those I did reach out to. I've never, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and be like, hey, I want to sponsor the show or let me give you this or this money or whatever. And I'm always, that's actually never worked out. I've always been like, I love this and I want to share it with my listeners. That's always how I've worked with podcast partners, but really, um, you know, the support for the show that's like kept it going and, and really enabled me to keep doing this is the Patreon membership. So yeah, I'm just really, I'm so grateful for all of you and all of the support that you contribute, whether that's listening to episodes, going and writing a positive review. I've mentioned this before. Uh, you can do that on any podcast listening platform, although Apple Podcasts is generally the um, most helpful place uh, that that uh, is accessible to people. And yeah, it's it's lovely having you all listening in. And I will be still uh, very present on social media, especially Instagram, so you can connect with me there. And yeah, I'd love to hear, you know, if you have any questions about this season um, or anything at all, social media is definitely the best place to reach out. I am so excited for the future of the show. I'm so excited for, you know, furthering what's happening and discussions and uh, as 
Dr. Adam Blanning mentioned it earlier, being creative and how Waldorf evolves and um, seeing it into the future. I really think there's an incredible opportunity there. And I've mentioned that before on the show and I'm looking forward to ways in which I can contribute to that work. Thank you all again so, so much. Be well.